From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name's Alok Cha. I'm a journalist, author and broadcaster, and I focus on stories about science and environment. When I was growing up, I definitely wanted to become an astronaut, but I realised that to do that would require several PhDs and probably to become an American citizen, so I had to adjust my uh, intentions accordingly. And so, But still, my entire career so far has been trying to do astronaut-type things. Alok Jha is a self-described water obsessive, a scientist and communicator. He's made an art form of unpicking and unpacking some of the most complex questions of our age. A fascination with water has taken him literally to the ends of the earth. A journey to Antarctica in 2013 came close to an unfortunate end. Thankfully, still with us, he joins a long list of remarkable science communicators who try to make the incomprehensible sound, well, perfectly simple. He has a physics degree from Imperial College, has written for The Guardian, and is now seen on ITV. He and his wife recently had their first child, and somewhere in between all of this, he's penned The Water Book. All of human civilization is, in some sense, he says, a struggle for the control of water. Alok Ja, tell me about growing up. Where was it? You sound like you might have been a rather nerdy kid, given what you do now. I totally was a nerdy kid and not some a nerdy kid who realised he was particularly nerdy, actually. Uh, I um, I was born in India, northeast India, in a state called Bihar, um, which is probably somewhere which most people have not heard of. I mean, you hear about the India of progress and money and uh, IT and all these things. And Bihar is the... Uh, is what William Dalrymple called the um, the Black Heart of India. It's an incredibly poor state. The um, the, the state is, is poorer than a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. There's a lot of illiteracy there, huge amounts of rural populations that are sort of forgotten, uh, a big middle class as well, but a lot of whom sort of leave the state as soon as they can. Um, traditionally, I mean, many, many years ago, many decades ago, it was a place of learning. Um, Bihar is where the, uh, the Buddha uh, uh, lived uh, and in the Mahabharata, these great epics of Indian culture, it's, um, it's, it is a great kingdom of learning. And Bihar actually comes from an ancient um, Hind, uh, Sanskrit word for meaning university, um, but it's a very different place now. And so how many years of your life did you spend there? I, sp- I was there until about, I, was, I was about four years old. And um, the first language I learned was Maithili, which is this dialect of Hindi and Sanskrit, which is a beautiful language, actually. I still understand it, but I can't really speak it. And my parents, when they want to shout at me, speak to me in that language. <laughs> um, <laughs> and did, but, did you actually have memories of those first yeah, four years there? I think I do, yeah. I'm fairly sure I remember my dad going to England to become a doctor. I mean, he, he was trained as a doctor in Bihar. He went to the UK to train, and he was going to, initially going to go for a few months, but he ended up getting another contract, another contract. And it was in the 70s when um, the NHS in England wanted foreign doctors. I mean, they still do, to be honest, but they were increasingly bringing them from places like the Indian subcontinent. My dad went to train and he ended up up staying and we were meant to just stay in India while he did this. But then eventually he stayed for so long that we ended up joining him there. So I was four years old. I remember uh, my parents in tears whenever he would leave. And you know, getting on an airplane was a huge deal back then. It was something that people didn't do very often. And so you know, it's, this this was a big thing. I remember those sorts of things. I remember seeing my dad off, that kind of thing. I wasn't quite sure where he was going. When I left, when I f- went to Delhi, got on a plane and had to leave my grandfather, who I was very, very close to, um, that's when I realised something was up. And I had to, suddenly it was on this metal tube and I wasn't quite sure where I was going. And when it opened up, 
up on the other side, I specifically remember being very cold. So your family was part of this great wave in the 1970s then that were migrating from the Indian subcontinent to the United Kingdom. You're four years old. Where is it that you land? And, And just how cold and shocking to you was this process? I landed in Wales. Well, I, mean, I landed in London, but we drove to Wales very quickly. We got there and um, I, I was four. My brother was about two, uh, something like that. And my mum had never left the country. She was quite young herself, sort of about uh, 21, 22. Um, she had kids very young. And she came from a very uh, looked after family. I mean, she, her family looked after her. She had friends and family all around. She was a, a bit of a socialite, uh, young socialite, as it were. Came to Wales, didn't know anybody, didn't really speak English very well. I mean, I, I, the, her story is probably much more interesting than mine as to how she managed to do this with two small kids. So this is a, a young mum that has pretty big ideas of herself and her place in society. Quite. Was ripped out of that and ends up somewhere. Completely different. And with no connections whatsoever, no idea what to do next or where, plus having two kids to look after who um, she has to get through school and in a place where she doesn't really know and understand how anything works. So I remember we'd, we must have arrived near wintertime because one day when it started snowing, my mum did say to me years later, she wondered what this stuff was falling from the skies because <laughs> she'd never seen snow. But, you know, you learn so quickly as a four-year-old. I remember going to school at four years old, not really understanding how to speak to people, but then very quickly having a very local accent in English because then we, we moved around quite a lot. So we were in Wales for a while. We were in North England for a while, a place called Wigan. And I developed a very strong Northern English accent. And then my parents moved again to South England, to Kent, where they have a nice plummy accent, of course. And I remember having a very Northern accent in amongst all these sort of, uh, there's this very white community where they had nice posh English uh, Kent accents, feeling very out of place for many reasons. So during your childhood, was science a thing for you? I mean, were you building sort of grand engineering projects in the bedroom? Were you out catching tadpoles and butterflies or dissecting small animals? Science was definitely a big thing for me when I was younger, Um, not necessarily because I was going out building things. I mean, I did take apart whatever I could, and I never saw science in my sort of non-school world as a sort of subject. It was just a set of questions about things I was curious about. So I'd like reading about planets and stars and and how the universe started. I'd go to the library and pick up popular science books. But I, I read a lot of novels as well and philosophy and all sorts of things. I, re- I did a lot of reading just generally. I was good at science because I was good at mathematics. But it'd be wrong for me to say that I did those at the expense of other things. I mean, I really enjoyed English. And if I think back now, I did a physics degree and everything and I ended up in journalism that was a very natural state for me. I, people ask me, you know, you did a physics degree. Why didn't you become a scientist? Um, well, it's because I like writing. And it, I've always liked writing ever since I was 11, 12 years old. I loved English. but I never thought it could be a career. It is, uh, is sort of making that transition from having a, a physics degree from a very prestigious institution into something like communications and journalism. Is that seen something as a uh, something like a sellout uh, of the science bit? No, I think most of my friends who are scientists are jealous of the fact that I get to travel around and talk about all sorts of things, and whereas they have to solve equations in one lab for the rest of their life. Uh, I'm, I'm joking slightly, but uh, no, not at all. I, I think that when I started writing and being a journalist after doing a physics degree, perhaps then it was a bit strange because not many people who did science degrees went into very different careers. You know, you are, when I did physics at Imperial, you either became a physicist or you became an investment banker. That was the career options available to you. And, you know, when you're young, you see yourself in the careers of the 
people around you, the people you know, whether that's your parents or friends, or the careers that are presented to you at universities. And very few people have you know, an idea beyond that. So I didn't know really that journalism existed as a career or that writing existed as a career. I mean, of course, I knew that journalism writers existed, but I didn't think it was a career option open to me. What was the point at which you realised that science was a pathway? I mean, you, you wanted to be an astronaut as a young boy, but is there a sort of point at which you were conscious that science was a way forward. You know, when I was at school, rather, um, I was good at science. I, I used to get really good marks in the in science, and so I was never a particularly sporty person. I was never particularly good at anything else in terms of uh, extracurricular stuff. So, physics and chemistry, and maths, and these things were things I just enjoyed. Maybe it's an Indian story or generally a migrant story, but you know, you're told to work really hard at school because you have to work a little bit extra to get the the really good jobs. And you know, the jobs they're talking about are professions like medicine, dentistry. Uh, engineering, um, banking, law. And if you want to do these things, you have to get really good um, academic results. And so, you, you know, that's what I was pushed towards because that's what my parents knew. Now, they supported me doing a physics degree, which was already a little bit outside their normal scope of things. Wall was wondering, you know, can you get a job with that? What kind of job would you get with a physics degree? And I, I remember quoting this poster I'd seen in my physics department at school about 100 jobs you can get with physics. So I was, I wanted to do that. But really why I wanted to do physics was because it was the best way of just fundamentally answering those questions I seem to have, like why are stars made the way they are? You know, why is the universe like it is? Um, when I read in popular science books um, about the big questions in, you know, humanity still have about how the universe starts or why gravity and quantum mechanics don't agree, I thought to myself, genuinely I thought to myself as a 14-year-old, you know, maybe I can answer these questions. And these are the biggest questions in the universe, never mind the trifling little ones. So I must do so physics. So this is quite ambitious. Yeah, but I didn't realise how hard it would be. <laughs> uh, when you're 13 or 14, you think, oh, it's just a question to answer. Maybe I can do that. And it really fired me up. I remember going around Imperial College and going to the physics library there and thinking, right, this is where I'm going to do my PhD. This is where I'm going to do it. This is where I'm going to find out and unify the forces of nature. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> it's like I quickly realised in doing my degree that that was going to be too tough. And so there were other things that I should perhaps pursue. Uh, and hence, I'm on the path that I'm on now. So unifying the forces of nature, being the next Einstein, is not in my destiny. But um, I'm hoping that whoever does that will talk to me for an interview at some point. Is departing from that science pathway towards communications, but retaining the scientific bit of it, like unifying two different sides of the brain? I genuinely think that science and the way scientists think is one of the most creative things that humans have ever done. I, you know, I, I work with many, many creative people in in, in my profession, whether it's people uh, making films or writing novels or, or writing non-fiction narratives or doing hardcore quantum mechanics. And the people who are really, really good at all those things have the same mindset. They're very, very creative. They can do things that people haven't done before. And what I think is extra about the scientific creativity is that you're genuinely doing something no one's ever thought before. The rest of us uh, are re reorganising things that have already been thought to create something wonderful. But a quantum physicist who creates some new mathematics to explain why a particle exists in the way it is, 
Generally, no one's thought that before in the whole history of the universe. And so that is proper opening, you know, going beyond any boundaries, creativity. And I, I think that actually there's a lot more in common with scientific creativity and artistic creativity than anything else. And actually, I think actually pure artistic creativity, whether you're an amazing singer or an amazing novelist as well, those people have so much more in common with creative scientists than, than you might think. And do you see that? Do you kind of spend time around those sorts of people? Yeah. And observe in a tangible way that that connection. I'm lucky enough to have met a lot of very, very impressive scientists. Um, some of them are so into the, what they're doing that they find it very difficult to relate to you on any human level. But you know what? We need people like that in our in our species to really push everything forward. There's not too many of them. Many of the scientists I've been lucky enough to interview, hang out with, become friends with, are incredible people in terms of the mathematics or the or the creativity of the science they do but they can also talk to you about it and that's i think the hallmark of a very good scientist someone who can explain to even someone who doesn't have any background in it what they're doing i'm always when i speak to people in my job i'm a journalist i go around speaking to all sorts of people about very complex things the ones i get on with most are the ones who can take the time to explain so complex things i, I don't understand anything really but that's my job i'm there for the audience to ask all the stupid questions and to drill down to what's going on. Is there an art form to explaining the very complex and making it actually quite simple? If there is, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, I've never really sat down and analysed in detail how I've gone about understanding something and tried to explain it, if that makes sense. So if if there is a particular story I want to tell, what I will do is just ask as many questions as I can to understand it myself, ingest it, and then try and try and repeat those things in my own narrative. And that's that's all I've ever done. There's no system to it. I think everyone has their own way of doing it, except one thing, which I think it's true across all of journalism, actually. It doesn't matter if it's about science or about if you're telling the story of refugees in Syria. It's to understand the subject, have the respect of the, to understand the subject, but also to understand your audience completely spend as much time as you can understanding who you're telling this story to and then it, it, all you're doing is drawing lines between the two that process is i think something you you, don't, you never perfect you keep going again and again and again and i've had the time I've done, I've done this for 15 years now so i've practiced and practiced and practiced and i've always said that journalism is a trade it's not really a profession is it you just do it again and again and again and again and you learn from your mistakes every single time so whilst i can't tell you what the practice is in any sort of, I can't write it down. I know what it is, which is that it's, um, you just do it again and again. If it doesn't work one time, you just try it again and try and make it work another time. Show it to, show it to people. Do they understand it? If not, rewrite it. And fundamentally understanding that, you know, writing, communication of any sort like this is not about showing off what you know. It's about making the person who reads it or watches something feel like they've understood something. That's the, ultimately the only job of it. And it doesn't matter how clever you, you think you, you are in it. And in fact, many of my editors, uh, one of my mentors at The Guardian is Tim Radford. He's a science journalist. Never went to university, didn't do a science degree, but probably knew more science than most scientists. He'd been doing that at The Guardian for a very long time. He had loads of advice about how to write about science. And one of the things that he said was, you're writing for an audience. You're not writing for the scientist. You're not writing for to impress somebody you've just met at a party. If you find yourself doing something where you spend loads of time constructing a sentence or constructing this amazing analogy and you're really proud of it, that's the first thing you should get rid of because no <laughs> one else will get it. Be, be humble. 
You are in this sort of club of scientific communicators, though. There's the, the Attenboroughs, the Suzukis, the Brian Coxes of the world. Uh, do, you, do you sort of meet once a year and decide who the leader is? I would never consider myself in amongst a select group of science <laughs> communicators with those three. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, look, but, uh, I mean, it's a sort of rarefied grouping, really, of people that can sort of stand on the global stage and, and in a way unpack these very complex things in a way that's popular. Yeah, look, I mean, I think... What, it depends what people respond to, isn't it? So people respond, I think, to stories of any sort. It doesn't matter really what their stories are about. Some people will say to you they don't like science, whether it's because, but they're thinking of science at school. And that's what they're responding to. But if you tell them a story about um, what's going on at the Large Hadron Collider or the story of a person who went off to the middle of the forest to discover new species and stuff. These are all actually science stories because these are scientists and they work in a scientific way. They think about the world in a particular way and they advance knowledge. But you can make those stories just about those people or about a question and they're just narratives like any other narrative. That, that's how to bring in greater and greater numbers, especially with the job I now do at ITV News, where our stories and scientific stories underpin a lot of what we do cover. So whether it's a health story or it's a, it's a study about economics or something, there's a, probably a scientific study involved underneath it. And that rationale, that thinking is just a layer in many stories now. And you wouldn't call them science stories, but those things are important to people anyway. There's a sort of cult status, I guess, around people like Brian Cox. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Cults are never a good thing, are they? <laughs> um, but I know what you mean. It's a kind of adoration. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the, th the interesting thing about, say, for example, Brian, is that um, in the last 10 years, he's done incredibly hard work in, in taking very complex ideas around the beginning of the universe or uh, the Large Hadron Collider and other things like that and being good at popularizing it, number one, um, having authority to do so because he himself is a very good scientist. But also not apologising for sometimes the fact that it's hard to understand and a bit sort of loopy and stuff. You know, saying, look, th this is something that we as humans have achieved, so I want to bring it to you and doing it in a very beautiful way. So um, he's come at a time when people are interested in these things. He's come at a time when, say, for example, the Large Hadron Collider came online, discovered the Higgs boson. Everyone's fascinated by it, but I bet you no one really knows what the Higgs boson is. But they know that this is something that's kind of trendy almost to know about. And it, it went around the world. He then represents a whole bunch of scientists and science communicators and things who probably had felt for the previous decade had been overlooked and felt that, uh, you know, they desperately tried to get things onto TV or radio or whatever and be ignored. And suddenly Brian's opened that door and, and um, they're, they're the, they're the flavour of the month now. I never take anything for granted. I mean, it might be that we, we, we'll go back into a cycle where no one's interested. But does he, has he actually opened the door? Is it easier to get stories up because of the success of, of his work? Well, it's hard to say for a fact, but certainly people like Brian and others, by the way, he's not alone. There are many other science journalists, communicators, scientists who have understood what it is to talk to non-scientists. Um, against a lot of tension and sort of resistance in the scientific community, the scientific community often doesn't like members of their community talking to the rest of the world because it cheapens what they do, so to speak. But actually, that's turning, and Brian was leading that charge. So now there are more scientists talking as well. So between them, what's happened is there's more of it in the world. It normalises it. So when, um, when, when you say to a programmer, oh, I'd like to do a story about this 
exoplanet that's been discovered that kind of maybe even have heard of what an exoplanet is now rather than having to explain oh no there are other planets around other solar systems and going through all the other steps so it's part of the water now as it were it's, it's part of life and therefore it, i think I, for me it feels like they're more interested having said that journalism around the world as we all know is in terrible st- state huge numbers getting rid of their specialists you know not doing science stories in, in any sort of sensible way so just doing them in a sort of um isn't it wow isn't it amazing isn't that an amazing star isn't that an amazing picture rather than what we should be doing with science stories which i'm interested in doing with science stories which is examining them in a more sort of sensible way rather than just there's a bit of wow going on somewhere what does this study actually mean um does this drug actually do what it says it does we should un- understand that science scientists are not these uniquely ascetic objective beings they're human beings they have flaws and whereas we can be impressed and uh, amazed with what they're doing we can also ask questions and as citizens we absolutely should ask questions for many of us the information goes way above our heads you know when science communicators are explaining something we might get part of it but the detail the data is just not something that we can necessarily comprehend it is to some extent an act of faith even though it's science for us consuming it it's an act of faith it's an illusion of faith in a sense because fa- so how, how, how does Richard Dawkins explain this? He, he was asked this question many, many years ago, and he explained it like this. He said, the difference between having faith in a scientific idea and a faith in, let's say, supernatural beings is that one's blind faith and one, one isn't. I can say I've got a faith in quantum mechanics, right? And I, I can understand quantum mechanics to a point, but nowhere near enough to actually tell you completely what it is. And, but I know that certain people have, and if I really wanted to, I could spend years understanding it and getting to a point where I get to the edges of it and I understand what quantum mechanics is. Whereas with blind faith, there is no further you can go than the article of faith itself. So yes, scientific faith exists in a semantic way, but it's not the same thing as having faith in something you you could never understand. But you must get the people that walk up to you and sort of say, well, climate change is not real. Well, yeah. It's not man-made or all, all the Less rest and less it. in the UK. Well, so, so 10 years ago in the UK, there were lots of people who would argue about whether climate change exists or not. And that debate has changed a lot. Now, those so-called skeptics will say things like, well, it's happening but humans aren't causing it or it's a natural variation in the earth cycle so 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 there were all these people who would would argue about the science initially they've really moved towards now the economic thing saying we can't afford to do anything about it or there's no point doing anything about it so that's that debate in the uk now in the world rest of the world where yes there might be people who still argue with the science i ignore a lot of that because there's just not enough time in the day to really tackle that because we with climate change it's there are so many other other genuine debates and questions there are questions to be said about whether we invest in renewable energy or whether we go a different way which renewable energies all these things are economic social political questions genuinely good debates to have around climate if you're going to argue with me about whether humans cause climate change or not honestly i'm not interested and we in the media in the uk at least have kind of made a decision not to take the scientific questioners seriously anymore uh, because it's just so overwhelming on that front if you want to argue with me about the economics, then fine, let's do that. Mm. That's fine. But, um, the rest Have you of it, observed the debate in Australia, in America, only, where, where it is more 
contested? Only, only from a distance. And I've been told that in Australia, of course, uh, there are certain scientists who will contest the basics of it. Science is an international pursuit. I mean, all of these scientists, if they're serious scientists, are will have to say these things on an international stage. And internationally, internationally, it's it's just not even a scientific question. But there are politicians, for example. Yeah. You know, they just don't believe that climate change is is influenced by human. Well, there are politicians who believe all sorts of things and they have to convince you just as much as you're convincing them, right? Now, if you come across a politician who decides that climate change is not an issue and it depends, if they've got any political power over things that are climate related, then that's an issue. Sure, but if they're a politician that has the balance of power in Mm. parliament, for example, and you've got a daily radio program or TV program, can you just not put them on because... That view is wrong, or do you have to give them that space? If a politician who is, say, a climate sceptic wants to espouse those views and the discussion or story you're talking about has some relevance to what they're talking about, then fine, put them on. But they have to be put into context as to why. And you have to then aggressively ask and question what they're saying. What I think is wrong is that false balance idea. So we did this in UK media for a long time, and it's reducing now, where you know, 99 scientists will say that the um, polar ice caps are melting because of climate change. And one person says, actually, that's not true. And what you do is take one person from each. And what that does is, is if you're a listener, think that it's balanced half-half and it's just a matter of opinions. Scientific opinions are not like that. They're based on years and years and years of evidence. There is a weight to them. And to enter the scientific record in any way, you have to do a lot of peer review, you have to do a lot of going through hurdles. So it's easy for anyone to have an opinion, but a scientific opinion carries a lot more weight. And so in my opinion, knowing, I'm a journalist first and foremost, but you have to assess evidence for your audience. You can't uh, derogate that responsibility. That's part of your responsibility. And in my understanding of how science works, I'll believe someone who's peer reviewed is, has an authority in science compared to someone who maybe doesn't. So yes, if it's a scientific argument, I wouldn't put the politician on. Do you think that the science community has, in some countries, maybe not in the UK, failed in some respect and by not winning the argument conclusively? I think they have won the argument, actually. Um, But in countries like Australia or America, where it's still a sort of politically contested and heated topic in a way that it's not in the UK. You You know, the thing is, you look at what happened in Paris last year in December, where every government around the world came together and agreed on a mechanism to reduce carbon emissions, to tackle the huge social and political problems around climate change. And, you know, they set themselves very high targets. And now every country is slowly ratifying that treaty. And it's going to be a legally binding treaty. So it's it's not right to say the world isn't taking climate change seriously. They are. And they did. And they showed that they did. And you, you don't get international treaties like that if people don't believe that it's happening. Now, in amongst every country and every part of the world, there's going to be a variation of opinions around how much they believe it's true or not and um, what to do about it and how much money to spend on it. And everyone's going to have local issues around economies and stuff. So you're going to have people all over the world who think that that was a waste of time or that we shouldn't be moving as fast as they're saying because it'll cost too much money or, or whatever else. But the fact that we got to that showed that the scientific community did convince the world that this was a problem because of the reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which reviewed thousands of papers over many years showing the extent of all of this. They they showed that, you know, they were certain that it was happening, but that there were all sorts of uncertainties around the rate of it, how much it would affect different parts of the world. They were very honest about all of that. 
And so I think the scientific case for it is overwhelming and has been believed. People can argue, will argue about this forevermore. Arguing that climate change is not happening is like arguing the Earth is not, the Earth is flat. That's how ridiculous it is. And if people are arguing about that, then that's fine. You can go off and do that in a corner somewhere. The thing about what to do about it and whether you believe it's happening as fast as everyone says it does and, and all of that, that is the true debates to be having. And I don't think, therefore, that scientists have failed. They've done what they can do. Now it's up to the rest of us to persuade each other. And of course, many people won't believe scientists. And many people won't believe that we should do stuff. But that's not a scientific argument anymore. And sometimes it might masquerade as a scientific one to wear that cloak of authority. Because, you know, even pseudoscientists, people who believe that, you know, putting a, a bracelet around your wrist will cure you of cancer or homeopathy is a wonderful thing. Even these people, they, they respect the clothes of science. They'll tell you there's studies and there's double blind control trials. They know the words because those things carry respect within the public. But they're not proper science, and they're not scientific arguments. I wouldn't call them scientific arguments because they're not doing science properly. Um, they are sociological arguments, and, you know, we're entering a different world if we're talking about those. So in December 2013, in your sort of bid to understand water in a in a very different way you embarked on a journey from new zealand to antarctica tell me about that i was invited onto a scientific expedition that was privately funded by scientists here in the university of new south wales and they wanted to retrace the steps of douglas mawson of course he is one of the great antarctic explorers uh, he's right up there with scott and shackleton and amundsen as one of the people who opened up antarctica what was most interesting about him was that as well as being an explorer, he was a great scientist and he was a geologist and he was interested in science. He wasn't just interested in racing to the South Pole. And so the scientists at the University of New South Wales wanted to retrace his steps across the Southern Ocean and make the same measurements he made of weather, of wildlife, you know, ocean currents, all these things to, to compare to 100 years ago of how this part of the world, this relatively untouched part of the world, has changed in the past 100 years, in the, in the 100 years that we've discovered things like environmental degradation and climate change. And because Mawson's scientific information was so good, he was so good at it, that stuff is still really valid, valuable scientific data. So you can directly compare. So the idea was to do that, essentially, with modern equipment. And, and what were you going to be doing as part of this? Well, I, I knew the, um, the, the scientist who was leading the expedition and I'd said to him years before we were interviewing about some books that he'd written, you know, if you ever go to Antarctica again, do you mind uh, inviting me along? Just as a joke, actually. But he rang me up two years later and he said, uh, Alec, were you serious about going to Antarctica? I was like, yeah. Uh, and he said, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm organising this expedition. Would you like to come along? And he wanted me to go there and be a journalist on it. And I had spent an entire career reporting science at the end of the process, right? So science is something that some scientific research happens over years, it happens over decades sometimes, and then there's a paper published and suddenly we report it in the press as if it's just popped out of nowhere. And I was complaining that, you know, we don't ever follow the process of science. And here it was, an opportunity to do that, plus also go to Antarctica, which was something that was a bit of a wish list thing for me. And so I was there doing that and I, saw, I was at The Guardian at the time and I sold it to them and saying, we can go. And uh, Douglas Mawson was not only a pioneering scientist and explorer. One of the things that he was well known for was that he would send um, he would use his wireless communications to send information back from Antarctica in re almost real time. And he was one of the first people 
going down there to do that. Traditionally, people would go down there, disappear for a couple of years and come back again telling stories about what happened. And Mawson was sending information back in real time. And so we thought in the spirit of that, why don't we try and send stories back for the Guardian website, send films back, send photos back of Antarctica that morning. And so that's what we did. We went down and we catalogued and reported and spoke to scientists and took part in scientific experiments and described landscapes. What is it like on the ground there? It's really hard to describe, <laughs> which is not a good answer, is it? The get, Getting to Antarctica has its own challenges. We, we sailed and so the Southern Ocean is incredibly rough. I was kind of unaware of that before I went, to be honest, and so I got quite seasick. Everything was very gradual to me. So, you know, we had, I was, just, I was seasick for a while, then temperatures would get colder and colder every day. You know, land disappeared very, very quickly, and we were in the middle of nowhere, and it felt very lonely. And then you sort of saw this, this immense landscape coming up slowly. At first, you saw little bits of ice, then you see icebergs, then you see the plateau itself. So you're sort of slowly brought into it and slowly brought into the temperatures of it. So it's like slowly being brought into it. And every day there's something new which you've never seen and which sort of overwhelms your senses. We went in Antarctic summer and there's no, it, the sun doesn't go down below the horizon. But what it does do is flirt with the horizon every few hour, uh, every, every day about two in the morning-ish and go back up again. You know, you're, you're surrounded by white ice, you know, on the, on the surface of the oceans. Everything's white. It's like the, the world has been drained of colour. And you get used to it very quickly. But at this sort of sundown time, the whole world explodes in colour. There's peaches and oranges and apricots and gold and there's, uh, there's, there's mauve, purple. It's all as if, like, the whole colour of the whole world has been drained away just to be, just to be concentrated into these two hours. And it's like a fireworks show. You've never... You've never experienced, and it's happening in 360 degrees all around you. Describing it is 0.01% of actually feeling it there. Seeing an iceberg for the first time, we've seen icebergs in uh, documentaries. We've seen icebergs in coffee table books. But seeing it for the first time yourself, when this thing's 50 metres high, a block of ice that's almost the size of a city, dwarfing your ship, if it came towards you, you're a goner. There's nothing you can do about it. It's um, epic at a scale that I'd never experienced before. Just being able to travel for what seemed like hours and hours and hours across the ice of Antarctica and not feel like you're moving anywhere because there's no markers around you. There's nothing to show scale. That's very psychologically demanding. Uh, often, you've, you, as well as it being cold, you've no idea where you are. And in every direction you look, it looks the same. So you can get lost very, very easily. And so everyone's very, very careful about every step they take. As someone who lives in a city and likes living in cities and doesn't really like being outside or cold very much, it sort of broke every single one of those boundaries. And so that's the only way I can describe it is it breaks every single um, sensory limit you thought you had. You scared? I was scared when I didn't know, when I couldn't see anything or didn't know about something. So on the way there, when I hadn't ever seen the continent or seen an iceberg, I would worry about the things it could do because you hear stories about icebergs crashing into ships and people getting lost on the surface and so on. But when you're on the ice, when you're walking around on it, you know, when you're walking in this entirely white landscape where you can't tell which direction is anything apart from the gps you've got on um a compass and you're hoping for hoping to god that it doesn't run out of batteries in that moment you're focused on that and because it's so cold and because it's so the senses are so broken there's no time to be worried about anything you're just focused on that one thing and you only get worried before and after. But to be honest with you, we were in very controlled environments and the people I was with were incredibly experienced. So when things 
did go wrong and they did eventually then everyone was in control and that's when you realize you know having experience around you it, it's all about creating space for things to go wrong so that when they do go wrong you've got time to deal with them rather than rushing around doing whatever you want things did go wrong and in a pretty significant way yeah they did so we had we got to antarctica we sailed around some of the east antarctic taking lots of scientific measurements i was writing things having a very fruitful time we'd been to mawson's huts uh, we got to them and we were turning the ship around to go back to New Zealand. And on that evening, the, the wind changed. And, and it does that around Antarctica. The wind and the weather and the ice is your environment. It, it controls everything you do. No one who sails around Antarctica or goes there ever has direct intentions of things. They, they don't, the captain of a ship, the ship told me that you don't have plans that are fixed. You don't say, I'm going to go 15 miles that way today. What you have is a book of intentions that is mediated by the weather. So sometimes you can go a mile, sometimes you can't move at all, sometimes you can go 20 miles. But you've got to be at peace with all of that. And so the weather changed when we were about to head back. And the winds essentially started to blow towards the continent from the Southern Ocean and blew lots of the ice on the surface towards us. So we were sort of pinned between the, um, the edge of the ice and the continent. So we couldn't get out. And the first day, the edge of the ice was about two kilometers away. So you could see ocean, open ocean. And, you know, this happens. Ships get stuck all the time and the wind will change and the ice will break up and you can carry on. You just got to have provisions. And we had plenty of provisions and people prepare for these things. Um, but the wind just didn't change very much. And the ice just carried on building up. The next few days, the edge of the ice was 20 kilometers away. I mean, it was really, really fast how quickly all this ice moved around. And because the wind was blowing, the ice was sort of doubling up on itself and thickening and pressuring the side of the hull. And we were stuck for about 10 days, I would say. And the ship's captain issued a mayday. This is kind of the wonderful thing about Antarctica, is that people who go there all look out for each other. They uh, have expeditions of their own to manage, and they're very expensive things, of course. But if someone's in trouble, then everyone tries to help. The closest ship to us was an Australia uh, was a was a Chinese icebreaker that was on its way to a base that was being built for the Chinese, and they diverted to try and help us. Uh, the Australian icebreaker Austra Aurora Australis was also diverted to help us. In the end, um, through because of various problems with getting towards us, because the ice was so thick around us that none of the ships could get anywhere near us. Really, the Australian uh, the Chinese icebreaker sent its helicopter to land next to us on the ice. We had to make a makeshift helipad land on the ice there and take us in groups of 12, fly us to the Australian icebreaker, which is waiting 20 kilometres away. And then um, we were on the, on the Australian icebreaker for three weeks before we ended up going back home. It's quite a long trip. It was seven weeks in the end, yeah. That's right. A long time to think and really experience that the things that people tell you about Antarctica, which is that if everything had gone completely normally, you might be forgiven for thinking it was routine. Nothing in Antarctica is routine. Everything is predicated on things going slightly differently to how you map predicted. And so everyone's prepared for that. And that's why you train. That's why there are so many contingency plans and things. A hundred years ago, when Mawson was going, it was the equivalent of going into space is for us now. You know, you, you don't go there lightly. It's still not easy to go, but it is much more routine. But even then, I don't want people to go away thinking that going to Antarctica is a simple, straightforward exercise. Are you thinking at that time, we might not get out of this, when it was happening, when we got stuck, 
uh, and we were told that we were stuck because we had daily briefings from the expedition leader about what was happening and the weather conditions and who was being made aid and, and so on. Every single day, we're pretty convinced that the next day something would happen, like one of the ships would get to us or something. So it always felt like it was just going to be a couple of days. Uh, tomorrow, something will change. And if you told me right at the beginning of that whole thing that you were going to be stuck for three weeks, I'd probably been a bit more worried about it. But in the moment, it was like, oh, well, tomorrow the ship's going to be here. And then in the morning we woke up, oh, it's not here. Okay, what's next then? What's the next plan of action? And at no point did anyone run out of ideas. It wasn't like, right, we've got nothing else we can do now. Um, and no one's coming at all. We were always in contact with the Coast Guard or another ship. The only, the only thing I slightly worried about was that if the ice kept piling up towards us and the ship was somehow damaged or crushed or something, we'd have to stay on the ice for somehow camp on the ice, which I'm genuinely, genuinely worried about because I don't like camping. <laughs> but maybe I was naive. I don't know. I don't think so. I feel like I had all the information. I was aware of the danger. But I also thought to myself that being worried, there was no purpose to it because we were so busy with work. And actually, somehow, I, I don't know how this happened, but the international media was fascinated by the story. So we spent a lot of time talking to news networks around the world. And so we were busy doing things. I was writing for The Guardian, making films and things. And so we were busy. And maybe if we'd not been busy and we'd had lots more time to think about it and people had told us exactly how unlikely or something the rescues were, then I might have been more worried. But I, I don't see the purpose in that emotion in those situations. Uh, I think it was recently you became a father for the first time. Yes. Congratulations. Does that, does that change the way you think about science, the way you look at all of these challenges facing the world? It doesn't change the way I look, about, I look at science. It will change how I do my job. I'm not going to be able to go to Antarctica for seven weeks so easily anymore. Back then, all I had to do was convince my then-girlfriend, my now-wife, that it was a good idea. When I got stuck, you know, she, she, she was worried and concerned and things, but there was just one person there. <laughs> but now, now I probably wouldn't go on something like that, at least for the next few years. You know, I, I, it would be wrong for me to say that it makes me work even harder to get people to take climate change seriously, because I think I did... I've always been like that, but it suddenly crystallizes into a human face what um, what I was I've been doing all this time. You know, it, it justifies personally a lot more of what I'm doing. But I would have done that stuff anyway, I think, because I genuinely believe it's an important issue for all of us. Hello, Joe. We'll leave it there. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mosser. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.